Hi all, I'm your host, Max Mountner. Today on the Accidental Engineer podcast, we're joined by Spencer Klein, VP of Growth at Dispatch Health. While Spencer graduated from college with a degree in politics, philosophy, and economics, he learned Ruby on Rails after graduation and quickly grew to leading a team of engineers at a marketing analytics startup, including bringing on board myself. Spencer's come on the show to share a bit about how to learn software engineering fast and why the world doesn't need perfect engineers. Uh, welcome all, Max of the Accidental Engineer here. Today we are joined by Spencer Klein. Uh, Spencer and I have known each other for over 10 years at this point. Uh, I guess we were former roommates in college is one way to describe our relationship. Another way is that uh, also former coworkers. Uh, but Spencer is an awesome guest to have on for a variety of reasons, but he's uh, very much the epitome of an accidental engineer in that uh, your undergrad was not computer science. Uh, your first job was not necessarily computer science either. So uh, I'm going to hand it over to Spencer and <laughs> feel free to give people an introduction to who you are and what you're up to, Spencer. Yeah, definitely. It's really cool to be on. Um, like you said, it's crazy that we've known each other now more than 10 years, more than a decade. Um, and I've been following the Accidental Engineer since you started it. Um, been really cool. Um, one, because I just wanted to keep hear what you were doing, but also um, I'm close friends with from high school with Ben Jacobson. So it's been cool to listen to your, your shared um, screencast and stuff like that as well. So I oh, appreciate it, man. Awesome to be on. Um, but yeah, like you said, I, I really am an accidental engineer in the sense that my undergrad degree, I graduated like Max from Claremont McKenna College in 2010. Um, my degree was called Politics, Philosophy, and Economics, which is like a mouthful, but it really just means pre-law. Basically, all our friends um, who also shared this major with me ended up being lawyers, um, and most of the other people who had the majors ended up being lawyers. Um and you did a lot of reading and you did a lot of writing and stuff like that. It was interesting. It was it was um, a cool experience, but it definitely wasn't anything software development related. Really, the only experience I had in college that was technical at all was I took a linear algebra class my senior year just kind of on a lark. And I actually found I really liked it. Um, it was something I enjoyed. So um, that kind of gave me the, my first indication that maybe I'd be interested in something a little more technical. But I definitely wasn't on that path when I graduated. Um, so and was, yeah. at age 22, had you written any lines of code? No, I had no clue. <laughs> like I, I, I could barely use a web browser. Um, <laughs> so you, you mentioned to me previously about your first job out of college. Uh, what, what do you do after graduation? Yeah, so I moved out to Boston because my plan was to take a year off and um, work with some graduate students I knew in Boston to, you know, beef up my resume and apply to graduate school to enter, you know, a PhD program in psychology or marketing or something like that. Um, the, the year after, um, I was done conducting all this research, but, um, conducting research like that doesn't pay and it would have been an unpaid internship. And so in order to afford pretty high rents in Boston, I had to get a job. And luckily the, um, the graduate students I was working with were consulting with a startup in the area and they were able to get me a job at the startup that they were consulting at. Um, the company when I worked there was called TipTap and it's actually still around. It's called Motive Metric now. Um, and what they do is they were working with these, these, um, you know, graduate level psychologists to try to really understand, um, a 
brand's audience. So giving them consumer surveys, looking at sort of the creative they're using on things like AdWords or Twitter or something like that, and helping you sort of understand what your audience was through these sort of consumer psychological techniques um, and to improve your campaigns. Um, what they were doing back then was a little different, but it was the same general theme um, to what they're doing now. And they're, they're basically service consultants to brands on that level. But So how did they bring you on board or how did, why did you agree to come on board? Yeah, they hired me to basically do create consumer psychological surveys because that was really what my background had been. And I had done research with these grad students um, on consumer psychology. And so that was initially what I was doing. Um, but I got there and I got into the office and I quickly realized there was about like three hours of work a day at most um, for the job that they had hired me to do. And I had eight hours to kill um, that I had to be in the office. <laughs> <laughs> um and so realizing that, you know, there really wasn't a ton of work, I started to look like get more involved with the engineering team and try to understand what the development um, cycle was like and what they were doing. And at the time, all of the development was outsourced to an um, you know, external agency actually based out of Bangalore. Um, and so there were a lot of issues with that just related to the, you know, the time change difference issues with communication and stuff like that. And so it really was the development was all over the place. And so um, I remember the first thing I learned was I went on Google and YouTube and I started watching Java, um, you know, instructional videos. There's some guy, I can't even remember his name now. Um, I donated a hundred bucks to him because he had a box like where he was soliciting donations. And I just felt like he changed my life. So I just was like, I'm going to give this guy a hundred bucks because he really made some awesome videos. And I just went through them all and learned all about Java because that was how some of the, um, the data analytics at the company was being done was through Java. Um, so that was really my first taste of it was that just because I wanted to learn about what was going on and I need to fill that five hours a day. And I didn't have anything to do. Nice, dude. And I guess, did your job title change at, in that role? Or were you able to use any of the Java you learned from YouTube videos? Yeah, so I was able to. And then it was interesting. So they eventually fired the CEO. Uh, or maybe not the CEO, the CTO was let go. And they brought in a new guy who I'll always you know, feel like a, an immense respect for and, and a deep indebtedness to this guy named Tom Harrison they brought in. Um, and he was, you know, a very experienced engineer. He had worked, you know, at a variety of different companies. He'd been in, involved in the internet really since the start, which was, you know, fun to be around. And he, um, you know, looked at the, the web shop, looked at like all the code that existed and was just like, this is terrible. Like this, <laughs> this needs to be, we can probably like salvage like five lines of this, but everything else needs to be rewritten, um, because it had been, you know, developed by um, this overseas, um, this group, which some of it was the direction too. We were giving them the the agency like differing objectives every day. So as a consequence, you got you got spaghetti code. Mm -hmm. So he migrated away from Java, and actually also there was some PHP on the front end. So I learned a little PHP too. So I got to learn that beautiful language. Um, <laughs> And he transitioned it all to Ruby on Rails um, and a Postgres database. Um, and that that was like an, a completely transformative experience too, because now I actually had real mentorship from this very experienced engineer. Um, and I, I actually, um, and we were talking about this a little beforehand, I went through a tutorial online, Michael Hartle's um, Ruby on Rails tutorial. And it's, it's I cannot recommend it highly enough um, because – 
He walks you through every little detail. Like sometimes the hardest part, I think, I still feel, I just started a new job a couple weeks ago and had to do a lot of system config. I still think system config is the hardest part of being a software engineer. Um, Agreed. (laughs) And Michael Hartle really like walked you step by step. He's like, okay, you got to add this to your your .bashrc file. You got to you know, change, you use sudo for these gem installations and, um, you know, Ruby, um, RVM, you need to install that to manage your various versions of, of Ruby and stuff like that. And so he walks you all through it and you build like a little toy Twitter app. And so I was doing that on nights and weekends to try to sort of supplement what I was doing for, for then tip tap now mode of metric. Um, and eventually I did. Yeah. It was a really like proud day for me. It was about a year, probably after I wrote my first line of code ever in my life, my first Java line that I just literally copied from a YouTube video. Like they had, they, I would just write what the guy was writing and I had no clue what it was doing about a year after that. Um, I got a promotion or promotion or lateral move, whatever it happened to be to, um, from the time I would think I was, can't even remember. I was like a research scientist was my title and they, they transitioned me to software engineer, which was sort of like um, a momentous move um, for me at the time. It felt like I had actually accomplished something pretty cool. At the time of your lateral move or promotion to software engineer, had you changed your mind about grad school? Oh yeah. I decided I was, the other thing that happened was that at the same time I was working with these two graduate students that, um, and sort of like looking at the reality of what, you know, um, you know, academic life was, and, you know, I still sometimes think that it would have been fun. I would have gotten a lot of value at it. There's, there's a lot of cool things to do in academia, but I just slowly came to the realization that I really loved building things. Like I really liked writing code and working on something tangible rather than, you know, conducting research with, you know, less tangible aims. And so I was, it was really sort of a big change because, you know, for the past five years of my life, my expectation was I was going to go to grad school. Um, and I had never even considered, you know, this as a route, but, um, when I just started doing it and found it was something that, you know, I was halfway decent at and people were willing to pay me to do, um, it just seemed like a better path than to, you know, shoulder a lot of debt and go to graduate school <laughs> with for an indeterminate outcome. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, f- so going from Michael Hartle's Ruby on Rails course, uh, what was your next progression in learning how to be an engineer? Did, did you move on from tip tap? What were, what was the progression yeah. there? Yeah. So and this is, I think this is an interesting thing. And I think you've probably experienced this, this too, where, so when you're hired to do one job, but you like end up doing another, you know, just because of your, like your own work or your, what you're doing offline, it, you can struggle to get paid what you're, you justify because, you know, they'll give you a raise that is, you know, 20% of your base because research scientists don't make anything. And, you know, it's not, it's not hard to do 20%, but you're doing software development work. And so I remember doing research and I'm like, oh, this is the salary of an entry level software engineer in Boston. Like this is what I should be making. But it was a really hefty raise from what I was making. And they, you know, TipTap tip, felt, you know, understandably so that, you know, they just given me a 20% raise. Like, why do I need to leave you more money? Um, and I understandably felt, no, I'm an entry-level software engineer. I should be paid like an entry-level software engineer. Um, and so I kind of became curious, despite being pretty happy. And again, even to this day, still having an immense amount of respect. He's probably my favorite boss I've ever had. Um, the guy I had at TipTap. Um, 
I started, you know, I got, I started to get those cold, when I, as soon as you throw Ruby on Rails on your LinkedIn profile, you start getting those cold calls from recruiters. This, this was circa 2011, 2012, right? Yeah, exactly. This was, yeah, this is 2012 or started 2012. Yeah. So I just threw that on there and like within, you know, you start getting like two a week from recruiters. Yeah. In Boston, that was a very much a undersupplied market. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I started like to take to take you know the phone calls from them because you know some of it was I was curious you know I'd done taken economics courses and I knew you know you're only as valuable as the market is willing to pay you so maybe if I if, if like the market's not willing to pay me an entry level software engineer salary maybe I don't I don't deserve like I can't justify it to tip that but if someone is then you know then I am justified in expecting that and so initially I wasn't dead set on leaving but I just started interviewing. Um, I only really think I interviewed at two places. Um, the second one being the job I ultimately accepted. And it was an incubator in Boston called Kogo Labs. An incubator is kind of a strange term for Kogo Labs. This is where Max actually worked as well for, was it like a little over a year? Uh, about a year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and incubator in this, it's not an incubator like Techstars or, you know, Y Combinator. Um, all the ideas are created internally. Um, they are, you know, and and they basically, they enter a whole host of different markets, but they try to leverage um, this domain general expertise in marketing. So whether you're entering, you know, an autos market or an insurance market, you know, there's a lot of things that are similar from, from, you know, opportunity to opportunity um, from a marketing perspective. And their whole premise was that they, you know, they were going to keep, you know, they were going to leverage that, you know, that domain general expertise they had in marketing to enter a bunch of different markets. Um, and so the pitch was really cool. They were the, my technical title. My title was technical analyst when I got hired, um, but I was reporting to um, a, the a lead engineer um, who I also have a ton of respect for, um, who was a really, really great guy. Um, who I went through this rigorous interview process where they were asking me all these brain teaser questions and I was having the code um, on, the, on the whiteboard and stuff like that. Um, and I actually got... This is sort of just a tangent, but I, they gave me a take-home problem to do, mm-hmm. um, you know, as like a test, which I actually I generally as an interview technique I like because I feel like you learn a lot about how the person thinks and, you, and it's more, you know, valid of an environment. You know, it's more similar to the environment that you're ultimately going to be working in rather than, you know, this pressure cooker of an interview. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, they gave me this problem. It was like a, it was a web scraper problem where they wanted me to build a web scraper of one of their websites. And the guy who was the hiring manager told me, oh, this should take you like an hour, maybe two hours um, to do. <laughs> and I, it, I remember it, it was my birthday. It was my 24th birthday, I think, July 23rd. And I spent the entire day doing it. Like I just like I, – it was much more difficult for me than I think he realized because I don't think they realized quite how green I was as a software developer. And I just sat there, but I'm like, I really want this job and I'm going to like – I'm going to ask 80 questions. I uh, did this back when I was learning. I would ask questions on Stack Overflow, really dumb questions um, that people would basically be like, you're such an idiot. It's this. This is the answer. <laughs> this is what you should do. And I would take the abuse because then I would have this line of code that I could use. <laughs> and so I was fine. And One so, of like, the things we yeah. should definitely do in the show notes is include a link to your Stack Overflow profile. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> it's like a hard time. <laughs> yeah, it's like a hundred. It's a hundred questions and no answers. 
Um, and you can read the abuse that we get. Like, there'd be so many things like, you're so dumb. Why don't you just read the documentation? And I'm like, you guys don't get it. I'm at a level where the documentation is like Greek to me. So I can't, <laughs> I can't do that. Um, I feel like you have to be like certain, a certain level of sophistication to read documentation effectively. But, and I wasn't there. So I was asking questions on Stack Overflow and I was doing all this stuff. Um, and yeah, it was like eight, 10 hours of work and I submitted it and, um, ultimately felt like I kind of tricked them into giving me a job. Is <laughs> how I felt. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I know this is a lot of information to share publicly, but do you mind sharing what percentage growth in salary or comp you got from leaving TipTap to join Kogo? It was pretty big. Let me think. Let me think. Um, it was about it was about a twenty percent bump above, and I had just already gotten a twenty percent bump. You know, a couple months earlier. So yeah. in the span of like four months, I went you know up you know forty fifty percent. That's awesome, man. <laughs> I re- I remember back in those days, and it was like we both graduated twenty ten. It was a year or two after the financial recession, and the job market to a new grad who's kind of ignorant about the long-term labor market, we th- I, I thought the, the world was fucked. <laughs> I thought like, <laughs> I'm never going to get a job, or I had a job, but um, I was very pessimistic about the near-term job market. And I, one of the, I, it's so mind-blowing in retrospect how learning a skill, even two months of experience with the skill like Ruby on Rails translates to a what amounts to a 50% bump in income. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. yeah no, it was. Not to diminish how much, how much time and effort you put into learning rails. Like you were working on your birthday all day, <laughs> not getting paid to do an interview problem. So uh, I, I just think it's mind blowing how at that time and through to today, it's there's specific skills just by acquiring. You can, you know, increase your income by 50%. Well, it was a weird time, like you said, because, you know, we went to this school that had a big, like, investment banking focus. Um, Henry Kravis was our most famous, um, of KKR, was our most famous alumni. And For, for people who yeah. don't know who that is, do you mind really briefly <laughs> describing Which, who he is? Henry Kravis, you know, I barely know. He gave our commencement um, address. That's where I've learned most about him. But he... Um, and he named all the buildings on our campus, but he basically was, um, he, he created the concept of a leverage buyout. So he bought a ton of underperforming companies on credit in essence, and then would strip them to their, you know, most basic assets and, you know, um, get them to be more effective companies and then sell them, but without putting a lot of money at risk himself. And he just made, you know, heaps upon heaps of money using that strategy. Um, though it did sort of slow down after the 80s and 90s. I don't really know what, what he's done as much recently, but it doesn't really matter because he made so much money when he was, you know, doing it the first time um, at the, when it first started. But yeah. yeah. And so because of him, like everyone in our school wanted to be an investment banker, you know, they wanted to do something like that. And then 2008 happened, which was right in the middle of our four year experience. And they all had the change. <laughs> everyone yeah. had the, there were, there were seniors in the, the year ahead of us who, who got job offers revoked. Uh, and very few of our, our classmates at the time were considering going into tech there were maybe four computer science seniors when we graduated. Um, honestly, the there I don't know if Claremont McKenna offers a major in computer science. I think you have to go through one of the sister colleges. So very few of our classmates 
uh, have, have uh, gone into the field that we're now in, like learning Ruby on Rails is pretty, pretty unique yeah. <laughs> for, for you as an alumni of, uh, or the class of 2010 of CMC. Yeah, I think, yeah, no, it was, and it was completely, and I think it was completely a different direction than I anticipated, which I think is good in your career. Like sometimes you don't want to plan everything out. You kind of want to take the opportunity as it comes. Because if you try to plan everything out, you, you'll like miss something that could have been a really cool detour and change, which is sort of how, how I've gone about it. Um, even Even up until now, I've made some pretty big changes recently because, you know, it felt like it was the right thing to do. But yeah, it was crazy how, you know, just spending six months learning Ruby on Rails completely changed my employment. I actually had real skills instead of, (laughs) I I, I say that in interviews to this day, I'm like, yeah, when I graduated, I had no skills. And so I felt like I had to learn something that would actually make me employable, which is sort of an interesting thing going to a liberal arts school. And you don't really think about it. You, you Max took more of a technical route and you had more skills graduating than I did. But I think... Yeah, when you go to liberal arts school, you don't always think about that. You don't even think about like how am I going to get a job. You, you kind of just yeah, they, they actively it. discourage you from asking that question <laughs> for sure. Uh, one of the things that I've commonly harped on and guests have brought up over and over again, including yourself just now, is it's it's kind of you're kind of at an advantage as soon as you're employed by somebody. Yeah. Because they give you very honest and direct and survivalist type of feedback about what is worth knowing. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about the Ruby on Rails subject matter is once you succeeded at the interview, they made an offer, you accepted it, uh, you were getting paid a lot more than you were just 12 months earlier. Did you end up using Ruby on Rails that much? What were what were the skills in the job that you had at Kogo Labs that were really valuable there? So yeah, it was interesting. So it was terrifying because when I started, um, I had spent all this time learning on Ruby on Rails. Actually, what I'm still the best, what I still think is my strongest skill um, and the one that I apply most regularly is is databases and SQL. Um, And so, yeah, when I got there, they, they were primarily a Python shop which I had never used. So it wasn't that hard to learn Python having known Ruby. It's, you know, it's a very easily, it's like Ruby where you can basically read it as English and still kind of get the gist, though there's still a lot of syntax to learn. Um, so it's primarily Python. They did have a little Ruby, but it was all Ruby 2.0. And I had just spent a long time learning Ruby 3.0 and there were big changes. I think some of the biggest changes in Rails um, sorry, not Ruby 2.0, um, Rails 2.0 and Rails 3.0. Um, I probably offended someone deeply there by... by, by. <laughs> a lot of our audience probably weren't in the job market when <laughs> Rails 2 and 3 were the current versions. Yeah, so they were using Rails 2.3 and it was just a different animal. And the active record was a lot different back then in Rails 2. It was a lot more... I, I don't like things that obscure the sequel. Um, you know, active record was much more of a yeah it was it obscured the actual sequel that was being written a lot more than it did in the subsequent versions in the subsequent yeah in the subsequent i I just want to butt in real quick and uh help out for our audience members that don't know what active record is there a lot lot of our audience is familiar with what sequel is but do you mind briefly describing what active record is yeah active record what what are they called what are they what's the general term for them um like object, object relational mapping yeah, so it's an object of relational mapping. It's basically a way 
to you might be able to explain this better. Sure, I just sure, know sure, I sure. hate them. I just know I hate them. That's so, what I don't know. Totally, totally. This is a this is a hugely controversial topic in web development. Uh, these are libraries in Ruby, Python that allow you to write uh, SQL queries as Ruby or Python code. And so you have objects that represent your tables in the database. And by uh, invoking methods on your table objects, uh, you automatically generate SQL to query those tables. So uh, for the, <laughs> the reason that uh, Spencer uh, doesn't like them so much and a lot of people don't like them so much is that they tend to be very inefficient and getting them to do exactly what you want them to do uh, in a performant way. So your queries are fast, whether they're adding data to your database or reading from the database is hard <laughs> in contrast to. Yeah. And I also think sometimes they like, it make it, it makes it for me at least because I like kind of, I really get SQL. Like I really like it and I think well in SQL. And for me, it just obscures what's actually being done. And even if it's executing efficiently, I have less understanding. Maybe it's some of it because I'm not an expert at, at active record or SQL alchemy or, or whatever, but um, I just have more trouble reading um, the code than if it was just written as SQL. So is my problem. SQL seems to have been a, a more valuable skill once you joined Koga Labs than any of the real stuff you'd learned. So ha were there was there a YouTube channel <laughs> like the way that you learned Java, but for SQL? Yeah, I bought a book. It was called I bought a Kindle book called um, I Have It because I bought it like a year ago because nostalgically. I was going through all my, I was building a library in my, my, I wanted to like actually have physical copies of a lot of the books I read. And I saw that one. I'm like, nostalgically, I needed to buy it because it, it, it was very important to me. Um, it was like, it was one of those like generic books, like learn, learn rails in you know, 10 hours. Or, I mean, learn SQL in like 10 hours or something like that. And it was just a bunch of workbooks and stuff like that um, to go through. But I feel like SQL so SQL is by far the most valuable skill that I learned um, because it, it really is applicable, you know, at any job, you're going to have to do it. I just started a new job this week, actually, and I really am relying on my ability to understand databases to add value right away because I don't understand the code base, you know, on day and then week one. Um, so but yeah, be, yeah, sorry. I was just going to ask uh, for our audience members that might know what SQL is, but are curious about what you do with SQL and, and how, for example, you add value at your current job using SQL. Do you mind giving uh, an example? Yeah. So SQL is basically a way to interact with databases. And if you know, databases, relational database, there's tons of complicated mathematical theory about how they're created. But at the end of the day, you know, they're really just Excel tables, you know, like they're the same things that you look for. They have columns and rows and data in them and they have key, the, you know, really their power comes from the fact that you can have a table of, you know, user IDs um, that, you know, Matt, you know, every email Spencer has user ID one, Max is user ID two. And then there's a, you know, another table of user attributes or something like that of, you know, what my last name is and what your last name is. And as long as you have that, you know, all the user attributes for Spencer are associated with the user ID one in the second table of user attributes. You can do what they call a join to bring them together. And it's as if they existed, you know, as a, as a single unit with, you know, all the user attributes that you were interested in associated with that, that user. So it's really powerful. Um, you know, relational databases, you know, and that's what SQL stands for, a structured querying language for relational databases. 
uh, have been around forever. And there's oh, there's recently been sort of movements towards you know what they call NoSQL, you know key key value stores, which I, you know more, Max more about than I do. But I think relational databases are here to stay. Now you know there's going to be always a place for these key value stores, no no uh, NoSQL, but um, it's just so powerful to be able to represent the data in the way that you can and to be able to join it. And when you're like learning how to code, one of the things I like about SQL is that. There's at the end of the day really like five syntax elements of the syntax. You need to know the select statement. You need to know the join, the join statements. You need to know where clauses, and it's not that much more. It's there's an old saying about like Texas Hold'em that it takes five minutes to learn and a lifetime to master. And I think SQL is the same way because the nuances of SQL are intense. Like there's you know you can you can spend your life learning about it and not learn everything. But I actually doesn't don't think it takes that long to to get up and running and start querying. Um, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about your new role. I mean, you said just now you've been on the job for one week. Do you mind sharing your title and the name of the company and what you guys do? Yeah. So I spent six years at Kogo, or five years at Kogo, and one year at a sister company of Kogo that Max also worked at as well, called Everquote. And again, I can't speak highly enough of both those companies. They were, they really changed my career in, in you know, in in a way that my time at TipTap was, you know, the first step, but um, down down my the path that I went on the the six years I spent there, I learned so much, and I really solidified that you know this is going to be my career, but. Recently, um, while I was very happy still at Everquote, um, I, you know, I moved back to Colorado. I'd been living in Boston for seven years, um, but you know, um, I, I, my family lives in Colorado. My wife's family lives in Colorado, and we wanted to be closer to them. And so, um, I, I decided to pull the trigger and make the move. And I wasn't actively looking for anything new. I was still working remotely, but I found. Um, there was a company called Dispatch Health who through some mutual connections I got connected with. DispatchHealth.com is basically, um, it's very cliched, but I think it's the most accurate way to describe it. It is Uber for doctors um, or for Uber for nurse practitioners and physician assistants more specifically. And basically what it is, is, you know, if you have something that you would go to an urgent care for, or maybe it's even a little more serious than something for an urgent care, but you don't really want to go to an emergency room because one, emergency rooms are expensive. Um, two emergency rooms, um, you, the, the infection rate increases, particularly for elderly individuals whose immune systems may be, you know, compromised. And if they have to, you know, get out and get into an ambulance and go to the ambulance, it's actually much better and cheaper for everyone involved just to send someone to you. And so they, um, I did a ride along, which was, you know, an amazing experience, really watching the impact on these patients um, who were having nurses, nurse practitioners and physician assistants come out and see them and treat their medical conditions um, and making it so that they can stay in their home, um, you know, and, and not have to make this trek out to the, to the, um, to the emergency room. And so that it's a really cool company. I'm like, I, the, my whole first week there, I was like, you know, kind of wide-eyed and excited and really passionate about what we were doing because it just seems so exciting. But anyway, my role, I was hired. I am um, my very, very short title, vice president of growth. Um, I'm going to be basically doing probably, two, you know, still early days, so it's still to be determined exactly. But um, prime, I'm going to be working on, you know, structuring their data and understanding, you know, how they're acquiring users and, you know, the cost of acquiring those users um, and making sure the data is able to properly attribute to marketing spend 
you know, if I spend $5 on Google, how much money am I making off that $5? Um, and then using that, feeding that data to run more effective marketing campaigns. So A-B testing, um, that's, you know, I, at Everquote and Co, that is what I did. You know, I ran really large scale, you know, email marketing campaigns and later some of other, you know, Facebook and other stuff like that. And so just applying those, those skills, um, they have a really, really great product and it's, um, it's, right now it's only in five markets than Denver, Colorado Springs, Richmond, Phoenix, and Las Vegas, because, you know, every time they move to a new market, it's just like Uber. They have to have, you know, an infrastructure there, like an office there. So it's, um, you know, they spent the whole first part of their existence just in Denver, um, just building it up there. And so now I'm going to try to work, work with them to, you know, really unleash some digital campaigns because they've never done a digital marketing at like a large scale before. This is one of the other big reasons I thought it'd be awesome to have you on the podcast is while your job title doesn't have engineer in it, it's VP of growth. Uh, I would very much call you an engineer, <laughs> knowing your knowing your background and skill set, uh, and I think for a lot of people also to hear about uh, your first jobs at TipTap and then at Kogo, where your job title actually at Kogo and mine too was analyst. Uh, I think people are um, uh, fixated on the engineer job title and uh, maybe the ba the high base salary that it commands, but. Uh, I think people are really overlooking some of their career growth if they don't consider um, how big the job market is and how engineer covers a lot of ground, but there's a lot more ground that having engineer skills can uh, make you an eligible candidate for specifically roles like growth, where you're very aligned with revenue. Uh, so for a lot of people that top out on base salary, as an engineer are kind of look enviously sometimes at salespeople who are on commission uh, or are closer to the money. Um, in, in my first job out of college, uh, I worked in finance and there's kind of a, a broadly true uh, fact of compensation in finance that the closer you are to the money, the more you're paid. Uh, so front office folks who are involved in trading and speculating uh, and market making uh, often make more and are, have a performance-based compensation in contrast to back office fixed salary folks who check trades or perform accounting. Uh, and the same is kind of true in tech startups uh, where engineers, depending on where you work, may or may not drive revenue. And one of the things I think both me and Spencer really appreciate about the time we worked at Koga Labs and Everquote uh, and performance marketing businesses is that while your job title might not be engineer, you definitely use programming languages, you definitely use databases, and you're very close to the money. So you have a lot more alignment with uh, understanding uh, how much you're worth to the business <laughs> and a little bit more knowledge about how do businesses actually drive revenue. And uh, like Spencer was saying, uh, a lot of focus at new businesses and mature businesses is on how much does it cost to acquire a customer? Uh, also, how do we lower our cost of acquiring customers? Uh, how do we improve the efficiency of how we're spending money on acquiring customers? Um, so, uh, Spencer, do you mind sharing a little bit about like uh, the type of methods that are available to companies for acquiring customers? Yeah, but before I do that, like I think what you're saying is really pr profound and true in the sense that you know I realized that you know I wasn't 
I was going to be at best, and you've read my code, so you know this. I was going to be at best like a mediocre engineer, like a, a true software engineer. Like that was where I was going to top out. And, you know, there's a market for mediocre software engineers. I would have had, had a job, um, but I was never going to be that great at it. I was going to be good. At, I could be good at it even, you know, with a lot of practice, but it was never going to be something that I was exceptional um, at. And so I, what I really think is that there – this I really think everyone should learn to code. Like everyone at a company, and that was one of the cool things about EverQuote and Kogo was really eighty percent of the company could write SQL, and most of the company could write Python. Um, and I think that's the future. You know, it's gonna it's gonna be it's not gonna be something that's siloed with you know software engineers write code and you know other people don't. Um, really, anyone who wants to be effective, you know, I felt like. Now, even, um, even I think you should be able to like automate some of your own tasks using, you know, a scripting language. You should be able to, you don't need to go to an engineer when you want to run a SQL report. You should be able to do it yourself. Even salespeople, in my humble opinion, should be able to do that. Um, and I think, I think that's the future. I think companies will, like, it's going, it's going to become, you know, back in the day, secretaries were the only people who knew how to type. And now it's just a skill you had to have, you have to have, you know? And I think that it's going to be the same way that just like typing is ubiquitous and everyone needs it. Um, you're going to need to know how the code, no matter what your job title is. Um, so I think to kids and like young, younger kids, I would say, no matter what your job is going to be, you should, you should learn something. And I didn't, you know, I didn't learn it at all. So I, I didn't learn it until I had oh. to. So yeah. Fascinating things I think about the modern economy is how, a lot of businesses, a lot of the most successful businesses are database businesses. And the example that I that comes to my mind often, besides companies that advertise themselves as database businesses like Oracle, uh, are businesses like Salesforce. Yeah. Salesforce, the customer relations management SaaS product, uh, is really a reseller of Oracle. And they charge a very high rent to sales teams. Uh, for uh, hosted Oracle, uh, skinned with uh, some default tables, skinned with a default uh, SQL schema, uh, and backing all of or of Salesforce's uh, hosting backend is largely uh, some monstrous sized Oracle database instances. So <laughs> they've managed to create a platform that is really database, rented database. Uh, but go ahead. Th- you could completely disrupt them if your salespeople knew how to query a database. You know, Absolutely. You, you wouldn't need Salesforce <laughs> at all. Well, Maybe you would. There's other features and stuff like that, but you well, have the, less of the, a need. The brilliance of a Salesforce or Oracle is the lock-in. Data, they're, they add, they're so critical to business operations and visibility to how a business is doing that it's very hard uh, from a cost perspective to switch uh, database providers. So uh, if a vendor can get you onto their database hosting platform, it's going to, without investing a a large fixed sunk cost of switching, uh, you're locked in pretty tightly. Uh, As was seen with MongoDB IPOing really recently, um, they're the non-relational database that are very controversial. <laughs> uh, they're they're they've kind of launched themselves in into uh, into IPO land by um, 
making a very friendly onboarding environment. So they're a non-SQL database. You can't run SQL against them. Yet they they tapped into a huge demand and uh, locked in a huge portion of the market by offering a really friendly uh, querying interface in contrast to SQL. Uh, I think I think the number of IPO multi-billion uh, valuation companies that are really database companies is pretty jaw dropping. <laughs> I, I would just I would argue that SQL is already a very intuitive querying interface, but that's that's I'm I'm in the minority in that opinion. That it, for that, sure, for sure. Well, a big portion of what you see with Salesforce, and you're describing how salespeople could uh, could do everything that Salesforce gives them if they just knew a little bit of SQL. Uh, is skinned user interfaces where you have validation. So a big part of a salesperson's day throughout the day is making calls, performing outbound, scheduling, uh, making sure calls happen or meet, meetings happen, uh, a certain amount of marketing automation. What what's a lot of the tools that are built on the Salesforce platform do is automate recording or writing log events to the Salesforce instance. <laughs> about what the sales activities have been for the given day. Um, and that could to- you're totally right in that you could, as a salesperson, write a Python script or Ruby script that kicks off a small amount of SQL to in- insert a log event to a database table. Uh, but from there, you end up getting <laughs> a sales team that in- entirely has to be uh, SQL practitioners, you know? Uh, yeah. Well, that this may this may be where I'm naive or I'm overly optimistic, but um, and and sales are is definitely the probably the one that is best justified at being non technical because it's you know it's such a different different sort of thing and you're on the road and you're doing lots of other stuff. But I I hate user interfaces as a rule. Like I hate whenever a company's like, oh, let's let's build a, a GUI that, that people can, a graphical user interface that makes it easier for our, our non-technical people to interact with it. Because my answer to that is always, you should teach your non-technical people how to interact with it. And if they can't, you should hire non-technical people that are smart enough to learn and or interested in learning. It's really, I, I said smart, but that's the wrong word because I really think anyone can learn these skills. You just have to be motivated. Um, some people aren't motivated, but if you are motivated and you, you want to learn these skills, you can. So I tend, that's that's a philosophy. It's a little aggressive. I don't know. And it's clearly not true in, in all cases. There's obviously places where you graphical user interfaces are worthwhile. But um, whenever I hear those suggested, I always I always bristle a little bit. So we're we're actually working on a SQL course, <laughs> an intro to SQL, uh, and we're using SQLite as our database of choice, primarily because it comes on Macs. I believe it also comes on Windows, but for people who are just getting started on SQL or considering learning SQL, what is a good first flavor of SQL to try out? There being multiple different SQL databases that are open source, freely downloadable to your laptop, what would you suggest? And and if besides using a command line interface to send SQL strings to the database, are there any user interfaces, graphical user interfaces you'd recommend to starters? Yeah, definitely. I, I'm, I'm, I, when I say I'm being too broad when I say graphical user interface, because I'm about to recommend one that I, I like, but it's because it, <laughs> it, because it's more about managing database connections and queries and saving them than it is about actually like 
obscuring the sequel. That to me is the land in the sun, land the the line in the sand. If you build a graphical user interface where you can actually still write SQL queries in it, it's it's beautiful. It's you know that's helpful. If you are making it impossible to do that, um, then what you end up doing is you end up locking into your current use cases. And when in the future things change, you know the system's not as flexible as it would be as if you could write actual SQL. But anyway, um, in terms of your question, you know, I, I definitely would go with one of the free ones. You know, like you said, there's, there's plenty of good ones. I have spent the majority of my development career working in MySQL. Um, and again, I really don't, you know, especially at the level of expertise you have when you're beginning, there's not a big difference between them. Um, I'm in an odd position where I actually like Postgres more than MySQL in terms of a couple of the functions they have. Um, the main one of Postgres that I like is the JSON columns. So you can store unstructured data a lot easier in Postgres than you can in um in in MySQL. However, I've spent seven years learning all the idiosyncrasies of MySQL, so I actually can write MySQL a lot quicker. Um, so if I was going back in time, I would have learned Postgres is what I would have started with and learned Postgres well um, rather than MySQL because really actually solely based on those JSON columns because there's a lot of cool use cases with them. Agreed. I, I think you can't go wrong with MySQL like you suggested. I also I, I say you can't go wrong using Postgres, uh, SQLite, another option that requires no uh, internet connectivity um, and is like file back, like very simple file backed. Um, one of the mind blowing things I find about Postgres is uh, just how adopted it is uh, for non OLTP workflows. So not as your primary web application backend. Uh, for example, Amazon Redshift is a fork of Postgres. Yeah. I don't know if I, maybe you're familiar with that, but uh, for those who don't know, uh, Amazon has a relational database product called Amazon Redshift, uh, which is a parallelizable columnar uh, SQL database, which is really fancy for multiple computers all running Postgres where your data is spread out across multiple computers. So you can scale out how much data is in your database uh, infinitely, <laughs> arguably. Uh, <laughs> however, uh, it's mind-blowing that it's it's uh, used for this because uh, it started out as a, a very simplistic SQL database that was intended to be run on a single server. Uh, we had a guest on... Uh, a couple of months back named Craig Kirstens, who's head of product at a startup called Citus Data, who are uh, making a, a similar uh, extension to Postgres as Amazon Redshift provides. Um, however, it's intended for being an OLTP database. So one that you can write to and expect decent write performance, whereas Amazon Redshift uh, is mostly for analytics uh, query loads where you're running queries over your whole data set or large subsets of it. Um, so I, I just find it bl mind blowing how, uh, how, how popular uh, uh, Postgres is. I, I love Redshift by the way. So I, I worked with it when I was at both Kogo and Everquote. I think Redshift is beautiful um, in the sense that it lets you, again, if all you need to know is SQL, like it is different and there are some nuances, like you'd never want to do select star because of that column framework that selecting star from the, the database and grabbing all the columns will actually 
make it take forever. Whereas if you just select the rows, the columns that you need, then it's much quicker. But I love that you can just write SQL um, as opposed to, and I've, I've written like three MapReduce scripts in my life. And it's, it, it MapReduce um, is another technique that sort of fulfills the same parallelization um, function that, that Redshift allows you to do. But you have to learn a whole new set of skills to do MapReduce. Whereas with Redshift, you get to apply these skills that you already know, and you don't need to learn all the nuances of, of MapReduce. So I, yeah, I, I am a big fan of Redshift for that reason. Oh, totally agreed. Uh, just just for our audience that's not quite following along with what we're referring to when we talk about parallelized databases and having an arbitrary number of servers where your data is spread out across them, uh, parallelization is throwing more computers at the problem. So if you have a, a query that takes 100 seconds on a single computer, if you threw five computers at the problem, it would reduce the runtime of the query by a factor of five. So taking it from 100 seconds to 20 seconds. So for certain problems that are intractable with indexes, uh, you may need to scale out the number of databases you have, in which case uh, Amazon Redshift is a really great solution. Citus Data is a really great solution. Uh, one, of the, one of the mind-blowing services, and this isn't uh, such a new, new uh, innovation in databases that I wanted to share with you real quick, Spencer, in our audience, is a service that Amazon came out with about a year ago. And I guess there's an equivalent with Google Cloud uh, called Bigtable. Amazon's is called Athena. Uh, and Athena will run queries, SQL queries, against uh, data files, text files, uh, in Amazon S3, their file hosting storage. And you, don't, you need to define a SQL table schema but you can run queries against these flat static text files and you're not paying for a database. You're only paying for hosting of the files. And then your, 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 the pricing is per query and it's proportional to how much uh, data in those files your query scans over. Wow. So cool. you don't have to pay any recurring costs for a database. You do have to pay per query and you do pay a very discounted price for just static file hosting, which is an order of magnitude or two cheaper than paying an Amazon or a Google or an Oracle for a provisioned uh, SQL database like Postgres or MySQL. So, for example, with uh, Accidental Engineer, uh, all of our access logs for hitting our website, theaccidentalengineer.com or podcasts.theaccidentalengineer.com are getting streams to S3. And we're putting together uh, guest reports where we're uh, analyzing, we're running SQL <laughs> against our access logs to generate reports about how many people are listening and how long they're listening for and how many people are visiting, et cetera, uh, without a database. So Accidental Engineer is database free, <laughs> <laughs> crazily enough. So Spencer, uh, are there any things that you wish I'd asked you or that you'd like to talk about before we call it a day? I guess one, one, I, I forgot to plug the DB, the, the database tool that I love and oh, I've absolutely. used now for seven years. Um, since <laughs> I first started, um, my first boss, um, recommended it to me, it's called DB visualizer. Um, and again, what I like about it is it's very simple. You know, it's not, it's basically just managing your connections if you're working with a lot of different databases. And the other thing I like about it is it records all the history of every query that you run and you can really quickly um, run through them and like be like, oh, what was that query I ran like two months ago? 
and you can you can search it and stuff like that. Um, I'm bad at saving queries that I really should save, and so but I know that it's always there. It may take me five minutes to find, but it, that's a lot shorter than it would be to rewrite it completely. Um, so. Yeah, I guess. And the only other thing, like, again, is like, I, I, so yeah, like you said, my role right now is not explicitly an engineering role, but I fundamentally believe that there is just really everyone should learn how to program. There is not someone, there maybe are a few exceptions here and there, but I think it, it infinitely benefits me now because I can, you know, engage with engineers much more intelligently, like sometimes and um, you'll, you'll have a conversation with an engineer and one of two things can happen either, um, you know, there'll be a disconnect where you could get 90% of the value with 10% of the work where there's some project where the engineer comes back to you and says, Oh, it's, this is going to take forever. This is really, really complicated. But if you actually understand even a little bit about what's going on, you can have an intelligent conversation with the engineer and be like, oh, well, what if we did it this way? Yeah, it's not exactly what I, you know, the project plan that I gave you, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's pretty close. And he's like, oh, actually, I could do that in a day. That's really easy. The hard part was this extra 10% that you don't really care about um, that much. Like, it's a nice to have, but it's not a need to have. Um, and I think, I think that's really valuable. And I think a philosophy that I've sort of come with that and the same, the suggestion, the guy, I can't remember his name, but his name's like Scott Adams. He's the guy who writes Dilbert, but he had this podcast I actually listened to on Joe Rogan where he had this concept of stacking, um, that it's not really important to be the best at anything. You know, you don't need to be the best engineer. You don't need to be the best marketer. You don't need to be the best anything. What you need to have is a unique combination of skills. And so for me, what I think really makes me valuable to an organization is I'm not the best engineer, but I can write code. I can read code. I can talk to engineers. I don't even need to be, I'm not even the best marketer, but I know a lot about marketing. Um, and, you know, I have a couple other skills. You know, I'm a good, at, good at managing people and stuff like that. And so you stack those together and I'm, you don't even need to be the best manager. I just need to be halfway good at it. You stack all those skills together. And then all of a sudden you're really unique to companies. And that's what I would recommend to people is think about it like that. Don't think, oh, how am I going to become a software engineer necessarily if that's what you want to be? be that but think about how can i create a really unique personal brand like a personal skill set that makes me appealing to companies um and that may take the form of being an engineer or it may take the form of being you know uh, someone in growth who does a little bit of coding and it may take the form of someone who in sales who forms the liaison between the sales team and engineering team so that's sort of my philosophy rather than and like i said you've read my code so you know i'm, I'm speaking the truth <laughs> when i say I'm, I'm only at best a mediocre engineer uh, I, I would say you are a you're a totally uh, uh, hacker mindset, uh, uh, meaning you are scrappy and you get it done, <laughs> which, is, you, which is which is ninety percent of the work. You know, yeah, I'm the guy you want to write V1. I'm not the guy that you want to write the code that's going to be here ten years from now. <laughs> well, what the other thing I want to attack on here real quick is that I totally agree with you on the front of. Everyone could benefit from learning some uh, familiarity with programming. Uh, and I totally agree with the stacking philosophy. Um, I'm not sure I agree with the, the philosophy that, that sales teams should all know SQL. <laughs> but I do agree that there's, there's a lot of benefit to interacting with databases directly uh, and, and being familiar with how databases work. Um, I think it's really evident how it's benefited you and your career and how successful you've been. And I think 
I, I agree with all the advice you're sharing with people about what they should learn, how they should prioritize it. Um, I think your story is super relatable. And uh, I think a lot of people are asking themselves, maybe not at age 22, with having not written any lines of code, but maybe even older, maybe 30, 40, 50 years old, who've never written a line of code and are wondering, will this benefit me? How how will this benefit me? Uh, am I really capable of it? And I think I think your story is <laughs> super inspirational. Like you went from zero to six months and, and, you know, increased your salary 50 plus percent um, just by doing a number of tutorials. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to, I don't mean to uh, gloss over it, but it's, no, it's, it's accurate. <laughs> That's yeah, what I, yeah. The best yeah. thing you can do, I think like the, and one thing that I got really lucky and again, this is, um, not something that is, you know, a lot of it was, I got blessed with a lot of good opportunities, like things that weren't outside of my control, but I was able to take advantage of. But the best scenario can be is if you can find a place where they actually pay you to learn how to code, because every company is eager, you know, to have people like start helping. Um, and especially if you're familiar with the business use cases and, you know, the, the general organizational structure, like it's not very hard for you to start adding value and they'll actually pay you to learn how to code. And they're not doing that altruistically. It's because you're actually adding value. Um, I'm a big proponent of that as step one. And then number two, if you, if you can't find that, then, you know, boot, I've had um, the people that I've worked with who've went to boot camps, you know, I've been really um, pleasantly surprised. I think if I hadn't, you know, if things hadn't worked out for me the way they had, I probably would have gone to a boot camp at some point, as opposed to, you know, taking two years off and spending a lot of money on an actual, you know, formal education would be one thing I think. Now I'm just kind of talking. I agree. I mean, I think we should do another episode about uh, what, what are the educational opportunities to people? Uh, if what type of first jobs should you consider accepting or, or looking for uh, or when should you really throw your hands up and say, I should, uh, I would feel much better prepared for these interviews if I did uh, did a boot camp. Like, what basically, if your goal is to get your first job, like Spencer did back in 2013 as a software engineer, um, there's uh, we can kind of do an episode reviewing your options <laughs> and the trade offs. Yeah, this is fun. This is I, you know, I like talking about this stuff. As you can tell, like it's. Um... You know, I, I feel really lucky for how my career has gone. And I think there were just things that I didn't know um, when I graduated college and, um, you know, I never had had a job before. So um, it's fun to talk about and, you know, reflect on, on where, where, where the past seven years have been, have gone. Agreed. We should really quickly take a moment to, to plug Dispatch Health again. Uh, yeah. Spencer, yeah, just <laughs> go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, dispatch health. You know, if you it's for urgent care style um, needs. Um, I'm 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 only a week into the job, so I'm not. I don't have the, the sales pitch down um, completely. But if you're in Denver, Colorado Springs, Richmond, Phoenix, or Las Vegas, we are there, and you know, hopefully expanding more in the future. But right now, those are the markets, and it's, yeah, it's they will bring our our slogan is we're bringing the house call back. We're bringing the house call back. So <laughs> awesome, and for people who are. Uh enraptured by Spencer's voice or, or find him to be a pleasant fellow, you guys should check out jobs and uh, at Dispatch Health and get in touch with Spencer. We'll have a, a profile page up for Spencer where you can submit any comments or questions and we'll forward them along to him. Uh, Definitely. Spencer, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Max. 
Thanks for joining us for the Accidental Engineer podcast. If you enjoyed our interview with Spencer and want to hear more about professional software engineering careers, visit our website at theaccidentalengineer.com. We have a large backlog of video interviews and sign up on our email list to be notified when we publish new ones. 